0: The way we feel about it, our own um, our own kind of default emotion, level of confidence, if you will, controls our ability to succeed. You must always aim high, and I I, I see many people imagining that that they should only try to wrestle the witness to a, to a tie in a cross-examination, or only advance the evidence to a particular point, because they might be afraid that if they go further, something bad will happen. And I think that that is what I have learned is the, is the single most important aspect of having an attitude in the courtroom. And it is a little bit emotion, it is also just a matter of feeling confident and almost invincible particularly in cross-examination.
1: Welcome to Of Counsel. I'm your host, Sean Robichaud. Join us as our podcast profiles remarkable legal advocates from all areas of law, the professionals of persuasion, the catalysts of social change, defenders of the downtrodden, protectors of social order, and the mercenaries of corporate interests. Those who, with the power of words alone, can shape the laws of nations, define human rights, and preserve or take away the liberty of another human being. Who are these lawyers? What are their secrets? And how do they balance it all? Court is now in session. All rise. Tom Curry is widely recognized as one of Canada's best litigators. Just recently, he was elevated to the position of managing partner at Lentzner Slatt in Toronto. He acts as counsel before all levels of civil court and tribunals in Ontario, including the Divisional Court, the Court of Appeal for Ontario, the Federal Court of Canada, its Court of Appeal, and the Supreme Court of Canada. In 2017, he acted as counsel for the Law Society of Upper Canada in the widely known and highly controversial case of Groya. Tom is a fellow of the American College of Trial Lawyers the International Academy of Trial Lawyers and a certified specialist in civil litigation by the Law Society of Upper Canada. His client base, along with his firm, is remarkably broad in the private and public sector, including class actions, arbitrations, business disputes, administrative law, judicial review, intellectual property, and professional liability at both the trial and appellate levels. Join us as Tom discusses the future of the profession, the importance of progression for law firms, the value of tradition, civility in the practice, running with Puff Daddy, and motorcycling on this episode of off Council. First of all, thank you so much for coming and uh, being part of our podcast. I was looking on social media and it seems like there's a lot of anticipation uh, hearing from someone as experienced as yourself. And I want to know, you know, starting off as I often do with everyone is how did it all get started for you? How did you get into law? What What set you down this path? So, um, it's interesting. I would say it
0: was more accidental than anything. I had intended when I was in high school to to think about law, but I wasn't a very good student, and I wasn't encouraged to pursue that.
1: You know, I have to say, that seems like a common theme among litigators. You know, Eddie Greenspan was the same way, and you almost hear any litigators, it's like C students,
0: but… It, that was my experience. And it wasn't because I wasn't trying. I just think I didn't know what to do. I have four sisters, three older and one younger. None, of it, none had gone to university. And so, so I, I, um, because you needed to do something in advance, I had enjoyed studying urban geography in high school. So I applied to study urban planning. And I didn't get into the three places at that time that you were allowed to apply to. Um, but I was, I was accepted into a program called Man Environment Studies at the University of Waterloo. And the suggestion was, you can transfer. It's in the same faculty, Environmental Studies. Unfortunately, though, that they accepted too many people into that program. And I was told in the summer before I went that my spot wasn't available. But there was a terrific professor in that program who ran it, whose name was Greg Michalenko, still around. And he, I called him to say, uh, to explain my situation. And he found me a spot in the geography department. And so I went to the University of Waterloo to study geography and then uh, transferred to urban planning, got my act together academically and on to law school from there, which was something I had always wanted to do, but it, it, no one would have imagined. And certainly I wouldn't have imagined that it might be possible.
1: Did you feel, you know, as this is approaching, was there a crossroads in your life where you think, if it wasn't for this one moment, I could have been not, you know, Tom Curry, the litigator. I could have been Tom Curry, the race car driver. It wasn't going to be a race car driver. I can
0: remember that moment is when I was in North Bay, my hometown and in my parents' home at the time, um, calling Professor Michalenko to explain the problem. And I imagined that if there wasn't a spot, I, I, I'm not certain what I was going to do. I didn't have a great plan B. Um, tell me a little bit about your past. Where did you grow up? So I grew up in North Bay and... Um, in the downtown of North Bay at that. Uh, still, still, um, sort of s- near the main street. My father was a policeman. My mother had been a nurse, but by the time I was, I came along, she'd stopped working. Um, family of five plus my parents and um, uh, th- four sisters, as I mentioned. And I worked in summer jobs and part time jobs and so on through that period in high school, and then and then headed off eventually to do urban planning.
1: When you were a young lawyer, you know, one of the questions we we were always um, interested to know what are some of the lessons you learned or maybe the most valuable lesson you learned as an articling student or as a young lawyer that's carried on to your practice today
0: you know I think that I think that um, the things I learned were to believe in the in the in the um, ability to solve legal problems that law students are taught at law school to just apply yourself as you would um, solving a legal problem that you had studied that there isn't really a big difference and I think I learned also, of course, the, the 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 extent to which
1: the work is very hard. You you have to apply yourself to it to do it well. Do you think this came from um, setting goals? Is that something that you've always sort of had in the background, or does it come rather serendipitously and you go with the flow? Um, I, I think that
0: I learned a valuable lesson about. Um, hard work when I had the near miss about going to going to university. And um, I think I had a different attitude and learned a different way of studying and applying myself after that, which I think carried me through.
1: You know, one of the things that is, is really um, fascinating about you is how involved you've been in social media, particularly over the past year. And I say that because I am banging my head against the wall often trying to get lawyers involved and seeing the value of it. And, um, you know, normally I would even ask my guests to provide some essentials of advocacy, but you've gone on to social media and actually passed these things on through Tom's tips. So how did that come to be that you thought, you know what, I'm going to pass on these nuggets of, of gold? It's interesting, you know, the idea is... Um
0: of was my son, Alex's. Um, my, I have three children and Alex wow. is the youngest. And um, he had an accident in the, just about a year ago now. And so I was using the, starting to use Twitter to, to update people on his rehabilitation, his recovery and mm-hmm. so on. He had surgery and the like. And he gave me the idea to try to use it in my work and came up, coined the, the name Tom's Tuesday Trial Tip. It was really a great idea, I think.
1: And. You must get stopped and asked about that all the time, right? (laughs) That must be something that even for, I mean, I imagine lawyers within your, um, you know, age bracket and call bracket must say to you, how do you do, how do I jump into social media as well?
0: Some people do. Um, I think for some, it's, it's an unknown and I think they imagine it's more difficult than it is. And I've tried to persuade people to use it. And especially to use it uh, as a way of learning and exchanging ideas i follow i follow all kinds of people you included who have just great ideas and access to new resources, people in England and people in America and all sorts in Canada.
1: Well, I think people often wait with bated breath for the Tuesdays now. And I want to read some of these because these are fantastic. Um, One is never make an opening statement for a defendant until the plaintiff or crown closes. Another is always start a cross-examination on a point you will not lose. Controlling and sets the tone. Stop a witness from running on by nonverbal tradecraft. Hold up like a hand like a traffic cop. On objections, make everyone you can win and none you can't. Making them be brief, be clear, be gone. And two of my absolute favorites is uh, in cross-examination, own the courtroom. Never ask if you may approach a witness, especially before a jury. And prepare your witnesses to tell the story to the trier of fact. They should all make eye contact with their trier of fact when they answer questions. You should help your witness remember this. Tell the jury what happened next or explain to her honor. Then, you know, that just by its face is is, is great and, and amazing to pass on. But, but one thing that um, I notice in your tips, and correct me if I'm wrong, but there seems to be an undertone that to you... Um, stoking emotion is an important thing in advocacy and persuasion do you do you tend to agree with that i do yeah yeah i do and i especially think that the
0: way we feel about it our own um our own kind of default emotion level of confidence if you will controls our ability to succeed i've often said to people in not only in the social media commentary but in teaching advocacy or or thinking about it and discussing it that you must always aim high. And I, I, I see many people imagining that, that they should only try to wrestle the witness to a, to a tie in a cross-examination or only advance the evidence to a particular point because they might be afraid that if they go further, something bad will happen. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is what I have learned is the, is the single most important aspect of having an attitude in the courtroom and it is a little bit of it is a, also just a matter of feeling confident and almost invincible particularly in cross-examination
1: yeah because you know even watching you know i came and watched your speech at the cla conference and um it seems as though emotion uh when you're presenting these principles can be rather contagious and i think that that sometimes is lost within the spoken word by itself or the written word um how does a young lawyer develop that sense of confidence and command of emotion to convey to the court but without sort of overstepping the melodramatics of it all right so difficult balance but i think the
0: single best way to do it is to read and read widely about what other advocates do Mm -hmm. and and have done and to find your own your own best way to perform in that in that sense there are some people for whom humor is very natural and they can they can Come in and out of an examination or a cross-examination or a submission and have some sense of humor applied. Other people for other people, that's a struggle and it lands flat. So I think you have to try to appreciate where your own abilities are and to expand them by developing, usually by reading, thinking, watching um, others
1: uh, how you can how you can improve. And is there any sort of way that You know, because I think one of the hardest um, obstacles that young lawyers have is finding their own skin in the courtroom and finding out what is natural to them. What advice do you pass on to young litigators in your firm to find that groove? So it's
0: really what I what I said a moment ago. It's it's um, reading about what has worked for others, reading lots of transcripts if you can find them. They're not difficult to find. advocacy symposiums or papers and books that have been written there are some tremendous
1: resources around what's your fave what's the one go-to book that you would send every um, young advocate to and, and not wow. even necessarily law so, right. right yeah so i have a whole lot um <laughs> uh,
0: in, including what i refer to as my olden days collections sure. i have a lot of a lot of books that are not in circulation particularly that actually interesting story i recovered from uh the thunder bay um County and District Law Library when they were throwing them away to make room for computer terminals of course yeah so a whole collection of things that are um, they were surplus uh, for that library but they're they're terrific resources we've I've written about and and spoken about Eddie Greenspans uh-huh. um, book for the defense right. a great resource david boys the american civil litigator has written a terrific book about trial work mm-hmm. which which contains not only narrative stories about trials but also is has tips all, all, all the way through, many of which are applicable no matter what kind of style you have. Mm-hmm. So I think it's reading, and and trying to find a chance to discuss this trade craft with people who have gone before. I find there's never any reluctance to find, to have those sorts of discussions with young lawyers.
1: And you touched on a little bit already with you know I guess people setting their expectations or the bar too low in what they can obtain in cross-examination. but what what is another uh, common thing that you see that's perhaps a, a common piece of advice that you think is just dead wrong?
0: I, I would say that as young lawyers start this this uh, practice, often they imagine that cross-examination is meant in every case to be a, an exercise in hostility right And I think that having the confidence, to approach witnesses and cross-examinations with a range of styles is really important. But it isn't intuitive. I think that people imagine that it's cross-examination and now you you must do something dramatic. Mm-hmm. And, and although that's often true, it isn't always true. And I, I think that having the confidence to try different things is... Um, is what I would try to get young lawyers to think about.
1: Where does the the bulwarks of stability come in doing that, though? How do you just jump into having the confidence to find that? I mean, is it coming from preparation mostly or? So I think it
0: is preparation, but it's preparation of the kind that I've described. If you have seen how another lawyer has successfully examined or cross-examined a particular witness in a particular situation, because so many situations repeat the patterns are repeated. Cross-examinations on prior inconsistent statements or prior statements of any kind, cross-examinations about details of, of um, events or facts. Some of those patterns repeat themselves. So you can learn what worked and didn't work. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that, that gives people a level of confidence. Of course it's hard to find the experience certainly civil litigation is much harder than it was to find those experiences in the courtroom so you have to look elsewhere for them
1: right and i remember you uh, at the conference talking about you know the time when you were uh, sort of emulating these greats like jj robinette and g arthur martin and and i think you said something to the effect of you know these were advocates for all seasons almost in the sense that they would do civil and then they would do criminal um and that's not the case anymore so um how? What's the path that you see for a young litigator to get the most experience possible to to get to that point where they can relive that and and like you say, obtain those lessons?
0: Right. So so it's interesting. I, I mean, Arthur Martin didn't do civil cases, but he but certainly um, Mr. Robinette, who was at the McCarthy's firm when I rolled in there as a as a summer student in 1983, and then articled and, and practiced had begun his career he'd been a law teacher he'd done a lot of different things but he certainly made his reputation as a criminal lawyer before moving more broadly into civil practice which is what he was doing when I when I first met him and arthur martin and this is such an interesting aspect of of the emergence of a, of an independent criminal defense bar arthur martin and and the early pioneers in that respect but the but for the for the people who are practicing now it is it is difficult to be a generalist. Mm-hmm. Um, the market has required specialization. Clients have been told that it's important to have a specialist, a person who just did the last one of these. Mm-hmm. You know, often clients will ask, how many of these have you done? And then they'll describe something that is, you know, a case in which a person uh, who owns a tech company is suing another person who owns a tech company and the issues are these or those. And of course, inevitably you can't say, right, I've done four of <laughs> four like that. Of you course, have to try yeah. to persuade them that what is the common, what what is common is the ability to solve that legal problem and to advocate for them in court.
1: Right. Um, you know, that moves into another question, and I know this is perhaps later on with what I want to get into, but I think it's a good segue. With client management, how do you deal with uh, clients who are difficult in different ways? So so one you just mentioned is perhaps uh, expectations that aren't realistic, or clients who are just uh, overly demanding. Do you have a strategy that you employ?
0: I think it's really important to try to be as confident as you can. Mm-hmm. And it's it's back to that same, same kind of going in position if you carry yourself not not in the sense of a, a person who's very pompous i don't mean that or a know-it-all I, I don't think clients respond well to that or no one probably does right i mean a quiet confidence that in which you make it clear in terms of setting expectations as you've described that you and not they are are going to be making the running the case of course they have to give instructions and in civil cases this is an issue that you don't face in criminal law mm-hmm. to the same extent Client in a criminal case gets to decide a few things, but not very many things. In civil cases now, it's very common for clients to imagine that they get to have an in, have input into a wide range of of issues about strategy and the like. So I think setting the expectations, having the confidence to do that, and and showing the client that you know what you're doing about the issue, even if you don't particularly. But you can gain that knowledge and confidence by those things we were talking about earlier, reading about cases. Even if you've never appeared before the court or tribunal that that client's case is about, if you have gone to watch that court or tribunal, or if you have spoken to people who have gone and found out about their local practice, you will be able to convey a level of confidence so that when you get there, you know what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And I think this is really important. Clients are clients will um, uh, take control of those relationships if they're allowed to
1: mm-hmm.
0: and uh, it can be it can be difficult but I think this is the key to it and
1: you when you're describing this what is going through my mind is uh, an art of communication and you know essentially that's our trade craft as lawyers and I I'm curious um, you know integrating that into communication with the public at large um, in particular you know going back I guess to social media do you see a sense of um, do Duty of lawyers to uh, communicate our role and responsibility within the justice system um, at, at large Yes I think so I look back at, at people who have done that so well back to Eddie right. who
0: who who took all that time off to campaign against capital punishment in Canada and so on lawyers have been at the leading edge of some of those social changes and are and are continuing it's an interesting debate presently um, in the context of sexual harassment or sexual assault. Um, But I, I think the answer is yes. And social media contributes enormously to that. Well, that was
1: my question. So, you know, I, and I can see you sort of pivoting a little bit in this on your social media where you're trying to engage the public in a broader sense. And, you know, when you look at your social media account, um, again, I have to say I'm very impressed with it because when you when you look at a lot of social media accounts of lawyers, it's about recent cases they've won and things like that. And frankly, I think most people don't care about that as a general public. Um, but your social media, which I think is quite effective, is it's bringing in um, broader people to say you know what I this is just interesting by itself you post pictures of of paintings and you give your trial tips and and some personal uh things and uh when you do that I think you can also start to bring in people to some of these bigger issues uh, about you know as you say the communication that that, that we um, need to pass on um do you see um uh, a strategy at play that lawyers could employ of how we could reach a broader uh, market to sort of remind people what we do as lawyers and our importance?
0: I think that's, I think yes is the answer. And um, particularly when when once they land there, mm-hmm. hopefully they will see not just the, the aspects of of our contribution that, uh, that is wrapped up in the law, but they'll see some other things. And I'm, I'm intrigued at how these connections are made in social media. And I'm 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 relatively new at it, but I'm observing how all of a sudden someone who is an artist mm-hmm. will begin to follow a person who is a lawyer, right? Because she or he has written something about art, and it it comes to the person's attention, and now you have a A connection that you didn't have before in the broader community
1: right and you know and uh, 20 years ago that would be done through things like lions clubs and business associations and here now um i I think your your account in particular on twitter is 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 proof that there there's this ability for lawyers and i'm you know i have to say i'm very glad to see you embrace it because uh i think that someone having the um uh backing of leinsters behind you as well as um your uh, prestige within the leo community really goes a long way and um even even things like i was looking at one of your uh trivia pieces where you were saying the history of the fabric adornment on the barrister's gown and passing that information on so let's hear it where does it come from and <laughs>
0: so really interesting i have to tell you and if you if you um if you can make a connection to him it's really worthwhile there's a judge who's now retired who he's a lawyer in Sault Ste. Marie sat as a judge in um, in Thunder Bay whose name is John Wright John de Poncier Wright and he contributed at a time when the Law Society had a gazette that was published in in print he contributes to something that was called miscellany which was a a kind of grab bag of of trivia and legal history and writing it was a really amazing section of that publication and he continues now. Speaking of embracing modern medium, he he now sends emails, right. I, I two or three a week, from him that include these kinds of little trivia things. So, so back to the gown. Right. The um, for some time I've been a, an advocate of using robing rooms in the courthouse and not having lawyers. Uh, wander around the streets in their robes or their vests or tabs or the like. And so I've had an interest in robes and gowns and the history of it. And I don't know before I tell you what what you thought the answer was.
1: I thought it was... something to do with putting money in the back of your, your hood or something. And then you basically get paid by the word or something like that.
0: Right. So the idea was, and this, this is a commonly held belief, and it may be true that barristers were not meant to have to face the indignity uh, of, of, of having commercial transactions. So they would turn their backs and clients would put the, put coins in this, what was thought to be a purse. And this is a vestige of the purse. That was the idea, one of them, but I think the better answer is that it's a vestige of a hood, a mourning hood from from uh, uh, the death of a monarch. It's a it's a longer story than we probably have time for, but that's that's likely the better interpretation. But I, the reason I tell you about John um, Wright, the Honorable John Wright, is because he has written about this in the past and i've collected some of his writings on the subject it's quite interesting
1: Well, so there you go there's the propagation you're just talking about from the podcast off to this and the and people will learn more about it but you know i think what uh the message in there is there's so much history within the law and you know these these um uh, pieces of trivia not just trivia but but valuable pieces of insights and um legal knowledge I think it's really important that um, lawyers like yourself continue to pass this information on because otherwise it just gets lost.
0: So important! There is a terrific book you must check, um, written by a magistrate whose name was S. Tupper Bigelow, and there are many people. He sounds like a magistrate.
1: <laughs> there, there are
0: many people who have who have um, vivid memories of appearing before him. So you you must find some and 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 get the stories firsthand. But he wrote a book on courtroom decorum and etiquette that contains all kinds of what I would say are uh, rules about how uh, lawyers should conduct themselves in court and and back to the gowns and the vests and the tabs, how they should not leave the precinct of right. the court. Uh, the Bigelow text is one place where it's all written down, right. and it's interesting. It was one of the things that I recovered from the uh, Thunder Bay county district library when they were throwing that those books well, away. i'll have to borrow it from you so i'm it's happy like, sounds to like it. the
1: emily post for lawyers very much <laughs> um, so you are um i think to many what would be considered a titan of litigation and i want to know as a young lawyer or law student who is your legal hero
0: oh boy i i there were many um i think the people I practiced with would be first named. Um, I mentioned Mr. Robinette. Um, when I was a student, uh, George Finlayson who uh, George Finlayson was appointed to the to the court of appeal, and I hold him in, tr- in very high regard. The, the McCarthy's firm had, at that time had all kinds of tremendous advocates, but the bar had others in each of the of the firms speaking now about the civil practice and a little bit at that time people were generalists as we've talked about mm-hmm. in the past john sapinka so there were these figures sheila bloch and uh, of course charles dubbin had gone to the court of appeal but each of the firms had these these your word titans i wouldn't include myself with that list but those people who had defined the practice, and each of whom had their own kind of style or method, and it wasn't uncommon for people to adopt the practice that they learned, the way in which they they did it. People from Tories tended to conduct themselves like Charles Dubin
1: did. Right, it's like different schools of kung fu. It's Ver- like the very <laughs> school much. of the tiger and school of the crane. And-
0: Completely, <laughs> and so what you could do though, what I think was really good to do, was to, to observe. You know, I, 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 although I didn't work with him, there was a lawyer, who's, he passed away recently, but named Claude Thompson, who had come from the Campbell-Godfrey firm. Eventually it merged with Faskins, et cetera. But Claude Thompson and, and I taught a class, he was very senior, I was very junior, but we taught this advocacy class. And I learned more from him listening to his lessons. Why don't you try this? Or why don't you try that? And he would explain to the students, Something. I, I, it was fascinating. I had never been exposed to him, wouldn't have thought of, a, of that way of doing it, because at McCarthy's we may have had a different approach. Right. Um, I think I mentioned when I was at the Criminal Law, um, uh, Lawyers Association conference that I spent a lot of time also working with David Doherty, mm-hmm. um, who was a tremendous influence on me.
1: Right. And let me ask you this, when you're watching, because looking back and the names that you've either worked with or worked for, uh, I mean... It's like reading, you know, the top one hundred of all times Rolling Stone songs, right? Are you aware of essentially the magic that's happening here at the time, or is this something in retrospect where you just think, "Oh my God, I was so lucky to be part of this."
0: Uh, yeah, no, I, I, I think I appreciated just how lucky I was when I was at Waterloo. There was a set of Ontario reports in the law in the uh, not the law library it didn't have a law school, but in the library, and. The first lawyer that I think I probably ever met was a person named Dennis Wood who was who taught municipal law at Waterloo. And he was a lawyer at McCarthy and McCarthy. At that time, I I no longer have them. But my notes from his first class, I had recorded the name of the firm incorrectly. I had it as Carthy and Carthy. Um, But anyway, that so he put a casebook together. He taught a course on a law course to non-lawyers. And many of the cases were cases of his from McCarthy's, and they featured Doug Laidlaw and Alan Lentzner, some of the other Mm -hmm. my my current colleagues and my then colleagues, and that was my first introduction to it, Mm -hmm. and and I was I I think I was so fortunate to be able to end up there um, and to have the chance to learn from those those people, Uh, and mainly because of the breadth of the practice, it was extraordinary.
1: Okay. So here's a a more practical question for you. Motorcycling. You are a big motorcyclist and, uh, you seem to uh, be really into it. You're the owner of a 2017 Ducati Multistrada 1200, which, uh, postdates the red rocket of a similar, uh, a similar, uh, prestige. So I I was looking at it and I thought red rocket to white knight. It's, is this some sort of metaphor of the firm's uh, elite Praetorian guard shift to managing partner? Now
0: I, I don't think so. <laughs> no, it just happened to be the one that was available. There there was a red one, um, but i but the this this particular model is the end of. Um, Uh, the Multistrata 1200 in 2018 Ducati has now made a a 1260 so I took the chance to upgrade but the only one that I wanted of the ones they had available was a white one well it's a beautiful bike so what do you get from riding why do you do this? I really enjoy it I always wanted to have a motorcycle and when I was a kid I didn't have the money for it and then afterwards um, too risky with three young kids so um, but I, I, I love it. It is um, it is a way of um, thinking about things that is totally different. It's not like driving a car. You can't be absent-minded. You're completely in the moment uh, riding a motorbike.
1: And for those that um, don't ride motorcycles, it's, uh, I, I think, fair to say a pretty soulful thing that happens when you're on your bike. And I would also go so far as to say that a bike is pretty reflective of the person. And there are a few things that I think you can properly judge a person on by first appearance, but I'm going to go to a limb and say a motorcycle is one of them. Uh, and yours is something that um, is an adventurer's bike. It's uh, capable of almost any terrain, powerful, dignified, sophisticated. I could go on, but sound familiar? <laughs> sure. it's. I mean, it's interesting.
0: Multistrata is, um, uh, translation is many roads. Right.
1: And it's a kind of Swiss army knife of motorcycles. Do you see that in yourself in litigation? Because I, you know, looking at your breadth of skill and, and the cases you do, it's it seems like you are the multistrata of uh, the courtroom. I've never, I didn't buy the bike for that
0: reason, but I I think that's probably fair. I yeah. do like to try to work very hard at, at maintaining and building a range of skills and experiences, which I'm happy to say, I you just don't stop doing, you know. It, sure. I remember I, had, I did a, an advocacy program with a terrific lawyer named Tom Dunn. And at that time, he, he, he's more senior than I am, but at that time, I've forgotten he might have been 20 years at the bar. And just before we did the demonstration, um, he said to me that he felt that he was just getting the hang of it at the 20 year mark. And I, I didn't understand it then, but I do understand it now.
1: Mm -hmm. Have you ever had any great epiphanies while you are on your motorcycle for a case thinking, okay, like almost like the shower epiphany of your cross-examination?
0: So I do, I do think about things. um, I I mean, as, as we just discussed, one does have to concentrate on the, on the riding. So uh, I do think it's a great time to think about things. I can't Imagine at the moment of an example of that, but I bet you it's happened. Right. Wouldn't be surprised.
1: What about running? You do a lot of running. You're really involved in that. You started a running club um, ways back, and you took some lawyers down to New York City. Did some running. Same thing. What do you What do you get from that?
0: Yeah, so that started really um, as a way of getting exercise. Once I stopped playing recreational hockey and doing some other things, you know, the time, time became a little harder to find for some of that. Mm-hmm. And in a way of, it's a bit of a stress relief, but the, but the single best thing about the running club has been, and it continues um, really a kind of an offshoot, the Sunday morning running group that I know you've heard about from Bruce Davies. Davies. Um, but the, the, what the running allowed us to do was to think about and talk about our cases while we were, spending time uh, getting exercise, for lack of any other description. The racing, the, the marathons came about because it really is a way of kind of motivating people to keep with it. Mm-hmm. If you circle a date in the calendar and you say, you tell yourself you're going to the New York City Marathon, then, you know, you, you, you'll you do it.
1: And I, I would uh, suggest to you, sir, that on June 22nd, 2017, it looks as though you posted a tweet about meeting P. Diddy during the… Uh Yes. Is that true? <laughs> I think
0: 2003 was the race. Right. It, it, yeah. So it is true. And that photograph was pa- taken um, by a friend of mine from this group named Navin Khanna. I don't know if you know Navin, but he was a colleague of mine at McCarthy. He's now at a different firm. But he ran in that race and ran with a camera and took that photo.
1: That's fantastic. All the more reason to look at your Twitter account and go back and see this amazing picture. I, you know, of all the things I thought I'd find on your Twitter account, it was not this picture. So uh, Diddy uh, <laughs>
0: posted that, uh, not that photo, obviously, but posted a comment about having run the New York City Marathon at the time when this documentary film about him, which I think is Can't Stop, Won't Stop. yeah, um, he, he made reference to the idea that... Uh, Uh, About his appearance in the New York City Marathon. So that's what prompted me to to dig out that photograph and put that up. Um, And of course, if you followed it, I I beat him by seven seconds.
1: But I only (laughs) found that out
0: afterwards because he actually passed me at the in the last few hundred yards. But he had started the race before I did. So that's great.
1: Okay, so now your your new role, you are now um, recently made managing partner at Leinster Slatt. So what does that mean? Um, how do you convert your talents of litigation into this area now that I presume requires a great deal of uh, business savvy and management? Uh, what do you see the future ahead for you?
0: Yeah, so I think it's very similar to what we've been speaking about. I'm really excited about the chance to, to do this. My two colleagues who had this role, Ron Slat and Peter Griffin, have have carried the firm forward for 25 years and we've just celebrated this anniversary. I see it as my job to make sure that the firm continues, that it continues to be successful, and that all of the people who are in it mm-hmm. continue to have the chances to to develop their careers in the way that those of us who've gone before have done. And I, I think it's very similar to what we've been speaking about in terms of advocacy. I really do feel a responsibility to make sure that I contribute as much back to the teaching and development of advocates as I've taken out of that.
1: When, when we see, you know, these big cases come forward, you know, you as the often the chief litigator uh, are the figurehead for the case. But what I think uh, is hard for people to appreciate, especially um, litigators who don't work in larger firms, is what goes into these sorts of cases. And in uh, a couple instances, um, you know, I think at one point you tweeted, uh, what makes teams work? Every team member must have a voice and ch- a chance to contribute, surround your yourself With people who challenge you, does I guess what I'm asking is what goes behind these big litigation points to the to the time you know it starts to the time that you're up there arguing those few moments to make the difference,
0: right? So it's teamwork, and it's and one of the things that you know that that comment you um, referred to is so interesting. There are studies about this, wouldn't wouldn't surprise anyone, I guess. What makes teams successful? What makes teams of lawyers and other professionals successful? And what we can, what we know about that is that when team members have a chance to contribute, from the from the youngest person to the most senior person, um, their ideas may not be incorporated in the end. But if they feel that they have a voice, Mm -hmm. and they are given um, an amount of air time to contribute, your the the result is better, and um, the, the team works more effectively. So, and, and I, as to surrounding yourself with people who challenge you, it's so important, you know, it's not intuitive for people. Sometimes people like to be autocratic about things and it's their way or the highway kind of, but I think if you, if you have people on the team who are, um, who, who are striving to get ahead in their careers and who want to contribute, everything is better. So in terms of the practice, you know, it's it's key to to be able to delegate effectively to give people a role and to encourage them to expand their own horizons and to and to receive your, their comments.
1: I came across a, a quote that struck me back in 2012 from Canadian Lawyer Magazine that said, quote, a number of boutiques in Canadian legal history have started with great strength, but have been unable or simply unwilling to carry it on. Sometimes people don't want to, and it lasts as long as the careers of the founders. Now, what I see um, from the outside is Lensner Slat has very much been able to maintain uh, that strength if not dominate the position of litigation in Canada. And I, I'm curious, what do you see as Slatt's, uh strength behind that? Um, and how do you intend to steer that um, success into the future?
0: It's a good question. I think that um, it's a commitment to the future. Mm-hmm. As soon as you say, as soon as a firm says, an institution says, that it's in for the long term, then it will make every decision and, and makes every decision along that to, to further that goal, then this problem solves itself. You will you will find the people who are committed to that. You'll train them and develop them and and pass along that which has been passed along to you. And there's so much to learn from successful, uh, from firms that have, not just law firms, but institutions, organizations that have succeeded over the long term, whether they're, they're teams or schools or or law firms um and as soon to me and that comment is 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 important i think that you read Um, many law firms law practices um are very successful during the lifetime or the careers of the people who are there but if those people don't invest in the people who are coming behind then it's very difficult to succeed in the future
1: i think that's some really great wisdom because um yeah. It's easy to get, uh, sort of hang the laurels on the names of the, the partnership. And, uh, but I'm, i it's great to hear that, that, you know, it's, it's often passing on that, that knowledge. And again, I'm happy that you're doing that even today with this podcast and passing information on. So I, again, I hope a simpler question, what does a great day look like for Tom Curry? Mm. So
0: I, I love, um, working with people mm-hmm. and I love, a day that has a lot of interaction with people, different cases. Mm-hmm. I have a lot of cases on the go at any particular time and I and I have a lot of points of contact with those cases, people who are working with me on them, that kind of thing. So I've always valued variety and um, I like therefore a, a chance to do a lot of different things in the course of a day. Obviously, if you're at trial, that's then 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 things are a little different. Mm-hmm. But um, n- normal normal kind of day to day activity, that sort of thing. I get so much from the young people I work with and my other colleagues who aren't so young. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things I also love is, uh, and I sometimes um, write this in the office, uh, uh, story time. I've, I've probably written it on on twitter but i have story time with a little trademark sign i love hearing what people have done that day those people who have been in court come back to the office and we have story time what you know what happened and how did it unfold everyone learns from those experiences and i enjoy that enormously in the course of a day
1: Mm, that's uh yeah that's my favorite part of the day as well as coming back the post-court uh you know debrief it's fantastic it's it's what makes the the
0: the profession so wonderful those kinds of things if you didn't have that experience it would be it would be very different wouldn't it
1: okay so You know, there's the great days, but there are some bad days as lawyers too, very bad days. And I'm curious, you know, we all share them in different ways. And I'm sure you've had some in your career. And how do you move on uh, to the next day and and sort of move past these things?
0: Yeah. So the bad days are, of course, uh, punctuated by losing um, or disgruntled clients or difficult opponents. Those are the kind of main things, I suppose. I cope with losing by drafting notices of appeal as soon as humanly possible, yeah. and I cope with some of the other challenges in the way that we talked about a moment ago. the The broad base of other experiences, other people in the office, the, the those those connections get you through the bad days. You can share them, um, you can get advice, you can get encouragement, um, and th- and th- and that's one of the reasons why. Um, I try to help people, even those who are not my colleagues who are practicing elsewhere. I try always to help people who might like to just talk about something like that, whether it's a difficult opponent, a difficult client or, a, or something that they have just lost. Mm-hmm. Um, because for people who are practicing on their own or in a smaller environment, sometimes it's not as easy. So I do try to be a resource for people like that as I, as I re- regard them as a resource when I need that pick me up.
1: Right. And, you know, it's nice, uh, I'm sure, for the lawyers within your firm to have that resource and, and be able to bounce ideas off you and how to move on. Um, I'm curious whether you feel the same sort of obligation to the public at large in the sense of, you know, do we as lawyers have a civil responsibility to pass on these the, the role of the lawyer, um, if I could put it simply?
0: I think we do i th- I think that it's it's changed in the course of my my practice uh, when I say it i I think that certainly when I started, I don't believe that the public associated lawyers with a particular with their cause, you know if they acted for a client, I think the public understood that that was their role as a lawyer um now it's a little more difficult to to know if the public associates us with the with the the law and the rule of law, uh, or if they associate us more lo- like mouthpieces for our clients, mm-hmm. I, I think that has changed. So, to the extent that we can reverse that, I think it's important. Do you see any way that we could contribute to that dialogue? It, it's difficult, uh, but I think social media and and the broad base on which people now share information has to be an important part of the of of the message. Uh, which is one of the reasons why I'm not pessimistic about the future of the practice or the future of the profession. It's easy enough for people of my generation to say, well, you know, when we were doing this, um, it was this way or that way. And I, I can appreciate why those changes have not all of them been good, but I look at the things that have are now possible and, and the, enormous talent that people have and access to different skills. And I'm, I don't despair about the future. I do think we need to figure out how to, how to get that message across though, to the broader public, particularly when the resources, the court resources are under, under strain. And, you know, in terms of certainly the criminal justice system, maybe to the breaking point.
1: Right. No, that's very true. And I think that's an ongoing struggle for, um, the, the dialogue of, especially as criminal defense lawyers, how do we pass that on and, and let the public appreciate the importance of these sorts of things? Um, I, I'm curious if there's a case, you know, whether it's a case or inquiry uh, mentorship or some unknown thing that you are particularly proud of that very few people know about.
0: So I think they would be the the experiences that I have had um, mentoring. I, I have had the privilege of working with so many students over my my career um, who have gone on to great things um, and some have gone on to to um, when I say great things just successful law practices Mm -hmm. they're they're not household names by any stretch um, but but they have built a career and are serving the public and doing good work so I would say my best feeling about it is what I would Caller, kind of the alumni, you know, the people I've, I've worked with just as, as I mentioned, uh, I had the benefit of, of people who had had helped me in terms of cases. I think the, inevitably, uh, the cases I've had for individuals have been the ones that have mattered to me the most where you've, where a person, a lawyer has made a difference to someone's life. Mm -hmm. Um, it's easy enough to, 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 um, or not easy enough it's different perhaps when you act for an institution uh, or corporation you might get a a tremendously important result for them but it's the individuals that I think I'll always remember Um, one is a um, one is a case called Pastore um, a case I did on appeal that concerned um, a motor vehicle accident an area I don't practice in particularly but um, got a good result on appeal and made a Made a difference for for Mrs. Pastore, um, and uh, that case was brought to me by a lawyer named Joe Campisi, a personal injury lawyer, and he teaches at Osgood. Um and he, he he dedicated himself to that case, and um, uh, until we got to the court of appeal, it had not gone his way, mm-hmm. so it was really nice to get a good result in that case. I'll never forget it, um, and then one was a cousin of mine I didn't know I had. Uh, um, my case known in the office as Cousin Pete, um, and I won't take the time to tell you, but uh, my colleague, Jan Lillis, did that case when he was an articling student, and it was a workers' compensation board issue. Mm-hmm. And uh, the tribunal's got a different name than that now, but um,
1: made a big difference it's quite a thing to see someone's expression on their face when they see their world shift one way or the other, especially to their benefit, and you know that's not always captured so well in the judgment.
0: Which is one of the things that I'm I admire, as I've I think I mentioned the Criminal Lawyers Association conference that about criminal lawyers that because that's a daily thing for for criminal lawyers. Um, other other advocates feel the pressure and the responsibility. There's no doubt about that.
1: Yeah, and with that, though, I mean, there comes a lot of pressure, as you can imagine, and some of that pressure can sometimes be um, come out the wrong way, if I can put it that way. And I, this is essentially my segue into what... Uh, an appeal that you argued recently, probably the most closely watched appeal for lawyers uh, in Canada. And that was the case of Joe Groy. And I don't want to get into the details, but I have some general questions for you about it. And essentially, you know, again, I don't want to relive the appeal. And and, uh, we all know that an effective advocate does not need to hold the opinion of the client or the entity that you represent. However, I'm asking you, you know, you as an advocate, how do you feel about civility? I mean, obviously it's important, but uh, doesn't civility fail at times? So it's a really interesting question. And as you know, there's so many perspectives. Um,
0: um, My own, um, quite apart from the sort of uh, role that I played there, um, um, because I could just as easily have argued the other side of that question, as, as you've pointed out, um, or for one of the interveners. But um, my own approach to trial work and appellate work and the practice of law, um, I would say I have put a premium on civility, um, as that term is used, uh, by which I mean that I, I think that it's much more... Um, um, I think it's much more effective first of all as a way of 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 conducting oneself as an advocate but i find the practice is difficult enough without acrimony so i try not to inject acrimony that said i quite understand how and i've we've all been in the situation of of having tensions Rise in the courtroom and moments of moments of what could be described as incivility. Those sorts of episodic experiences, though, are different than what I would say is a kind of uh, approach to the practice of of law trial work, especially. Um, I, I, it, it's probably just my temperament, but I have not really uh, found it necessary as a kind of default emotion to to inject um, acrimony I I try and I try to teach this email communication is so interesting Uh, sometimes I will receive an email from someone and I think why are why so angry you know it's it's just a terse sentence or two Mm -hmm. so I always try to tell people uh, with whom I work just have a a salutation hi Sean um, and a valediction thanks Um, Mm it changes everything about the way in which communication is received so i do try to practice like that right. to to make sure that the my communications are clear and so on i don't think anything is taken away from the from the importance of the communication that lies between hi or dear sean and, and but uh, that's what i consider to be an essential ingredient of making the practice work effectively
1: right these little inflections that can get misinterpreted but you know if you make it clear then but you know it's interesting you say that because um as you're describing this uh i guess some of the things that were put forward at the hearing of 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 groya was how the trial judge uh themselves um made findings essentially that It was okay, it wasn't great, but it was enough to not intervene. And at at one point, Chief Justice McLaughlin um, indicated that, you know, quote, what's concerning me is that if you have a reasonable basis test, the test applied at the appeal panel, you're basically asking them to act as a trial judge. Chief Justice McLaughlin said you are giving a judicial review of whether or not he had a good point in evidence or had the law on his side. And I'm concerned about the law society actually sitting in on a judgment on whether there was reasonable. reasonable basis in the law for a tactic taken by counsel. And again, I I don't want you to comment on the case and for whatever, it's probably not appropriate. But what's behind that, that I I think you can comment upon is um, how do we then curtail our emotions as advocates when we get caught up in the moment and we can start to see the train going off the rails but on both sides because you know in my experience you may find the same way is this can escalate on both sides and if one party's called out and not the other um, it can be disastrous very difficult and and the
0: role of the trial judge or a tribunal is really important the question that's raised in the matter on reserve now in the Groya case and probably other cases, too, is that when the trial judge or the trier of fact decides to, if it's a tribunal, decides to stay out of it. And there are many reasons why, as you know, why a trial, a trial judge might decide to keep her views to herself. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when, the, when that occurs, does that change in any way the professional responsibility of the advocate or advocates. Mm-hmm. And so I think that what um, what the appeal panel tried to do was to was to set a basis on which conduct could be assessed objectively in part at least um, so that so that it wasn't exclusively, um, uh, open season, say, um, if a trial judge just decided to keep her views to herself and not to re- not to to ask the trial lawyers to behave differently, um,
1: it's a, it's an interesting
0: question. Yeah,
1: we're all you know obviously waiting to see. Do you have any idea when the judgment might come out?
0: I don't. I think um, I, I I I well, of course the um, uh, I think the chief justice has yeah. I suppose six months to. To uh, to deal with the reserves and um, the court released some some decisions I think today uh, so it'll be interesting I think people imagine that it'll be before the six month mark
1: it's certainly one of the most um, awaited judgments in legal history I'm sure it's it's such seems- an
0: interesting set of questions you know the people have there's no shortage of views and perspectives
1: right um, so. I guess looking into the future, what are what are some of the changes that you see in the law coming down the pipe that, you know, you and I'm, I'm very happy to see uh, or hear rather that you're optimistic of the future of law and what is it that you think will change for the better and what are you concerned about? I think that the,
0: the single biggest uh, change in terms or, or single biggest pressure point that will require a change is the the um, the issue of the unrepresented or self-represented participant in the justice system, lit, litigant or defendant in criminal cases? Um, we have a, a large number of lawyers in the province, and a, a large number of clients who seemingly cannot get access to legal services. And I don't, I certainly don't have all the answers, but I think that we are going to going to see technology come to the aid of that uh, of those clients who cannot afford lawyers and make uh, make it easier for lawyers to provide the legal services that are presently not being provided that could take a number of forms it seems to me and and leaving aside for a moment the legal services that people might need for wills and estates and the the kinds of common experiences that people have but just sticking with civil and criminal justice um, I think we're going to see probably through the use of technology or increased tech technology, um, access to justice being improved. And, uh, I think it's a worldwide or Western world phenomenon, that's for sure. So that there, there, there are going to have to be ways to, to try to address that, mm-hmm. uh, whether it's artificial intelligence in part, whether it's, whether it is access to different systems in the court, um, to reduce the cost and delay of adjudication of civil disputes. I would like to think that we can also preserve the adversarial system and trials as, a, as a, a feature of civil justice, because I think ultimately, notwithstanding that we have tried repeatedly to reform civil justice, there's a reason why the adversarial system has worked for 200 years and we shouldn't, um, we shouldn't turn away from it. It doesn't mean that there can't be improvements. Uh, there can be ways to reduce the time and delay and, and the cost. I think about this a lot, and I, I, I'm, I expect that that is going to be something that is addressed in the in the next uh while I, I don't i don't i don't have the numbers in front of me but i have looked at the percentage of individual of, of cases in in our court of appeal the federal court of appeal the federal court and the superior court of justice who are unrepresented and then break that down and look at family cases or uh, right. you'd, you'd be much more familiar with the criminal court um and whether that's whether that's duty counsel or increased funding to legal aid um, we really need solutions to those problems and they they will be found at least in part it seems to me by in, rooted in technology and improvements in technology
1: is there one um i guess you could say uh, well sweeping or minor change that's tangible that if it were up to you as attorney general or chief justice you would change tomorrow if you could boy it would be nice if they could if they could uh, back to technology really bring the
0: court into the even the last century sure yeah just um, getting
1: the uh, electronic this and that right it seems to be a common one it's no paper <laughs> right
0: or it and it to, to eliminate the need for just some of the some of the process some some improvements
1: in the process could reduce cost and delay it seems mm-hmm. to me well, let's talk about something that's far easier to fix, uh, space travel. Uh, <laughs> you are a huge space fan. You are, I, I was told that by Bree Davies, and then I started going deep in your Twitter account. And uh, what's your fascination with the final frontier? So I think I would say, um, I, I
0: grew up during the time of the Apollo space um, program. And so I've always, I've always marveled about um our accomplishments, uh the human accomplishment. It it is just an incredible story, that Apollo program, and 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 space exploration generally. And it's an example to me of something that I really think is so important. And it comes all the way back to what we're speaking about, trial work and trial advocacy and 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 having a passion for for it. Um, because it's an example of of aiming high, setting the bar at what would have been considered to be impossible and then achieving it. And I, I, that's what I like best about it. After that, it's, it's such a great study in individual human accomplishment. And again, just, just as a matter of confidence mm-hmm. um, and, and obviously technology and so on um and and it's it's good that we're speaking about it this week because of course Elon Musk's uh um, right the car and space Falcon uh, <laughs> heavy the the largest rocket to be launched in history um yeah. space exploration is back it's it's, back. it's very cool it's cool again <laughs> it's cool again yeah and i think it's i think he's got great plans and great ideas but i just love the idea and this is the message really for 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 not that lawyers are going to have to go to space to do this but but thinking big is is really important
1: yeah yeah it's uh, and you know look at it, look how far the justice system has come i mean there's certainly some things that uh definitely stand to be improved upon but um as you pointed out i mean this is a very different practice than where it once was and uh, right. there's a lot more to go
0: and people can people can i think imagine solutions and and achieve them um It's a kind of can-do attitude. I I really like it. It's emblematic of that whole period of history, and and we could use a, a bit of a reminder about it, and we got one this week.